Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and I'm here as always with my faculty meeting co-host Tom. Tom, say hello to everyone. Hello everyone. Uh, And as part of our continuing faculty meeting redux redo, we are looking back today at Dungeon Talk episode 17 for this week's episode, faculty meeting 153, DMing isn't that hard. It's not. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Before we get into the show proper, we do want to take a quick second to give a shout out to a new patron from the patreon.com website. However, it's actually a returning patron. Larry's getting a double shout out here because last week we credited him because he left Patreon, but then he sent us a yearly donation through PayPal, and then he joined the Patreon again, Patreon again. So thanks, Larry. Appreciate it, buddy. Uh, Larry's also technically a faculty meeting now because he's now my regular co-host for Econ Fundamentals. So I guess he's just trying to get us closer for us to pay him back. So he's actually, it's like a pyramid scheme, but he's the only one involved. Hope that works out for you. And then this week's patron of the week is Chris Nottingham, who's also one of our newest patrons. Uh, Chris is someone that actually plays a lot of tabletop simulator with me. We play uh, Sentinels of Multiverse, um, Legends, uh, Marvel Legendary, and a few other games on there. Uh, And he's also coming to the faculty retreat next month. So Chris, really appreciate you supporting us through patreon.com. If anyone listening would like to consider supporting us as well, Go to patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. Links are in the show notes. $3 and up gets you some cool perks. $5 and up get you the bonus podcast. So before we get into the show, though, we always like to take a minute to talk about why we are here. So during this conversation Tom and I are about to have, we hope that at least some point there'll be something, a little nugget of wisdom that you can pull out, apply at your tables to make your games more fun for you and your friends. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Tom, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no, so no matter what game you're playing, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, as long as you and the people at your table are having a good time, you're doing it right. So with that out of the way, on to the show. So obviously, we got to talk about some RPG news. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. So a few things. All right. First off, it's been a while since our last faculty meeting. You know how these things go. So there's a few big pieces of news that dropped, which may not be new to everyone here. But not everybody is on Twitter who listens to this show. So we're going we're gonna to bring them to you. So the big one is Zine Month. We mentioned it last faculty meeting, but now it is live. All right. Uh, you can go to zinemonth.com. I make sure I got that right. Yes, zinemonth.com to view all the zines uh, that you would expect to see in February, which typically Zine Quest on Kickstarter, but that's not happening. They're doing Zine Month this year, and it's being kind of organized by Feral Indie Studios, but they're really, it's not necessarily the way they've done it. They've decentralized it. It's not under their banner. They're just the people who made the website, and anybody can submit their games to be posted there. It's a great website. We've got a show and tell coming up um, where I interview them to go into all the details there. But definitely go check it out. Some trends I saw were lots of mothership games, lots of hex crawls, and lots of solo journaling games. I've, I'm not really into mothership, but I do like hex crawls and solo journaling games. So there's a lot of stuff on here that I personally like. Uh, the one I wanted to point out was a game called Chalice by Monkey Paw Games. Um, you basically, it's a solo journaling game where you get to be a knight looking for the Holy Grail, but you fail at the end. So, 
Yeah. So you kind of know what's at the end. So you can kind of do your journal with that in mind. So there's a lot of cool ones. And Michael, I also picked out one for you. All right. It's called The Mall. The Mall. The Mall. All right. So listen to this. This is the description of The Mall. All right. I want to read this because it's great. The Mall is a wet, gooey, practical effects filled tabletop RPG adventure set in 1990s. Mall. It was pulled straight out of time and space. The Mall Desians are trapped inside with a creature not bound by any one form. It slithers among them, preparing to assimilate and imitate its victims, and no one is left. And it can open a rift between its home dimension and Earth. Does that sound like anything? It does sound a little bit like The Thing, one of my all-time favorite movies. So yeah, they it's super cool what they did was they've created a game that looks like a board game the cover art of it but it's Mm a rpg that takes place in the mall and it's basically the thing but it's the 1990s and it's in a mall so it looks super cool but yeah go check out zine month so a couple things i want to mention one is um because of our show econ fundamentals i'm looking at kickstarter and other tabletop role-playing game sites a lot right now yep and there are some zines or zines that are not part of this. They have either weren't included or didn't know about it, whatever, but there are quite a few of these that are still on Kickstarter. So if you are interested in zines, then zines, I don't know, whatever, uh, you might want to look other places as well, because I saw several on Kickstarter, actually. So it's interesting. We talk about this in our interview. They actually have, this is the only, they're going to do zine month every year. This is the only year where they're going to include Kickstarter. So actually, for example, Craig Campbell's um, zine that he's funding is part of zine month as well. He submitted it to zine month. When you click the link on zine month, it takes you to the Kickstarter page. Gotcha. So there's definitely some crossover there, but yeah, you're right. Not all of them, you won't see all of them there. And that has to do with Kickstarter dropping that they weren't doing Zine Quest two weeks before Zine Quest. So right. we go into detail. So definitely be on the lookout for that show and tell coming up. All right. And then I also want to mention, I, I've never done a solo journaling RPG before, but I've recently kind of gotten interested in the yeah. idea. And some of this is because of The Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett. And this is not a spoiler, but I do like the idea of a solo journaling RPG that is set in the Star Wars universe where you were a Jedi Padawan and your your journal is about your coming up through the, you know, your journey from a Padawan to becoming a master. But there is a caveat. Your master is either secretly a Sith who's trying to turn you or they have lost their faith in the Jedi Council. And so basically they're doing a really crappy job. Like they're not really trying to bring you up into the fold for what, so either outright evil or just lack of, maybe focus you're it's not a very solid journey that you're going through i think that'd be a fun um solo story whether it's journaling or maybe like a one-on-one role-playing game i think that'd be a fun scenario to go through does sound pretty cool so if you're listening to this and design games you can have that one for free yep um, just change the ip somehow there you go all right so the next so let me ask you a question um have you ever heard of dark souls uh, haha. um no what's dark souls I, I think it's a video game have you ever heard of 5e I've th- I've played it one or two times. Okay, so I have been told that there is a perfect marriage between these two things, and currently the internet is on fire with their love and adulation for this concept. You may be existing in an alternate dimension right now, Michael, because you're kind of close there. So, yeah, Dark Souls RPG, we talked about this, too. There was rumors, not rumors, it was done by Steamforge, so everybody kind of knew it was going to be 5e, but they officially said it was going to be 5e. 
And uh, there was a lot of backlash from the community, more so than I was expecting. Some of this backlash, I was in on it. I was tweeting furiously about this, all right, because I have my opinions about this game. Uh, but yeah, I really was expecting, I knew the normal crowd that would be against this game. But I saw a lot of people who are typically more go along with the licensed IP5E stuff who were not for this, which I think was interesting. There was a, uh, Steamforge did come out and they did talk about how they're changing the game. All right. And there are going to be vast differences to the 5E system. All right. They're going to be changing a ton of stuff. But now there's this question as far as like, well, you're, why didn't you just do a new system if you're changing it so much? And then the other thing, they were in their their release. They talked about how that there is this whole idea of stamina in Dark Souls. And they didn't know how to do stamina. So they decided to make a different rule. So it's just very, it's very, uh, you know what? It's going to be, I'm interested to see now, which is, I kind of want to read it now only to kind of, I want to confirm my bias. All right. That is the one thing. Cause I do think I'm going to see what I expect. What I'm really interested to see is how much they actually diverge from five E and if it could have done a completely new system, because if they could have, and if they're just stamping five E on the book to sell more. um, Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, this is interesting to me because we talked about this a few episodes back. I mean, probably within two or three, we got into a conversation where I talked about, I don't really think it's that big of a deal to take the chassis of 5e, but then to heavily modify it. Because to me, that's easier than building an entire system that still involves rolling dice, probably a d20, probably high numbers are better. You're probably going to have like a target number or like maybe a DC. So... I have no problem if they're like, we're going to take the basis of this, but we're going to change it to make it make sense for Dark Souls. To me, that makes more sense than to be like, well, we're going to rebuild our brand new system that's going to basically be the same thing, but we're just going to do all this extra work. Like, it does work. So many people can play games with 5e that they're loving it. It would be like rolling a d20, getting high numbers is good. Okay, let's start there. And then build our own game on top of it. I don't get why people are so... I think people honestly just need to get their butt, heads out of their own butts over this. I think it's dumb that so many people are upset that they're building... Because they're like, well, if they're going to change that much, why not make their own game? Because it's hard. It's really hard to make a brand new game and start yeah. from nothing. It's easier to start with something. Yeah. I, get over I, it. I think we will never agree on this, Michael. And I, this goes, I, I absolutely see what you're saying. From a commercial standpoint, this makes total sense for Steamforce. They are, they're letting 5e do the heavy lifting for them. I think really it comes down to whether it's not necessarily, I think the real big, the discourse you're seeing in the community isn't necessarily, is this good or bad mechanically? I think it necessarily comes down to, does this embody Dark Souls? And then also, where do we draw the line with creative laziness in the industry? So that's kind of where they're kind of like, can you, uh, it's, yeah, the whole idea of, I don't know, it's, it's art is very weird and making money yeah. is strange. I think so. that's part of it. And this is my Michael conspiracy corner. 
I think recently the Wizards of the Coast, WotC, Hasbro, whatever, they put out their like earnings report and D&D by itself made like a billion dollars last year. It's 93% of the entire tabletop RPG market. Right. So. And I think everyone knows that D&D dominates, but I think seeing that number, a few people kind of had sticker shock because they were already like, well, D&D is so big. No one plays these other games. You know, like, and there's this sort of niche indie game market and everybody's trying to fight for a little piece of the pie. And I just think that so many people seeing that actual number and how big it is, I think this just sort of like hypercharged some of this... Um, honestly jealousy to some extent and then frustration with the way the system is you know it is it basically is a monopoly i know that there was a big twitter thread that went off about like that but D pretty much has a monopoly on the industry at least in terms of size of audience not necessarily like well i mean i guess money because there are other games that are there but no one's buying them because they're buying this other one instead so it's not a monopoly like you can't buy another game but so few people are yeah, and I don't think that I don't I want to make sure that we don't people don't mischaracterize what you're saying. I don't think that we can boil it down to just a jealousy, all right, from a lot of people because I do think that a lot of people do have a, a significant concern with the monopoly that they have over the industry, and I think really what the community wants people to do is just start questioning them more. Like, because there's this, it's okay to question the biggest company in the industry. And so that's where the kind of, that's why I feel like there's so much friction is, so when anybody says anything about 5e, there's just a, a giant, like, a lot of people don't like that. So, and then when somebody doesn't like that, there's obviously, you know, for every force, there's an equal or opposite reaction. So... It's just going to continue to, everything just continues to just clash and it just continues to amplify itself. So it's a complicated thing. Um, I do think, this is my prediction, I think we're going to see fewer and fewer 5e IPs um, games. I think that, I'm going to call this right now, I think that where people are going to start seeing that the 5e ship is starting to has left port a long time ago. And I do think that people are starting to get interested in other games. Um, so I'm curious to see how long these last before people start to realize that we're not game companies are not going to be making those six figures on every single licensed 5e product. I think we're going to start to see that come down. It has to. It has to at some point. It's interesting. And moving on, what else you got for me in the RPG news? So speaking of other big companies, uh, you know, I guess it's all relative, but Free League's One Ring is in the wild. Uh, it is uh, available. It'll be available for anyone to purchase if you miss the Kickstarter on March 22nd. I just did a interview, another show and tell with Francesco Nepatello, who's the desi- who was the lead designer for the One Ring. Uh, and it was awesome. Francesco was a, was super cool to talk to. He's been in the industry for a really long time. And it was really great to get a pers- the perspective of a non-US, non-great, non-UK designer. Somebody who's... Because that's I talked to mostly US and UK designers. So it was great to talk to somebody from Italy and get their perspective on game design. So that was a good one. Uh We'll be doing, obviously, our review of One Ring. I've got all my stuff. Full disclosure, I backed all the Kickstarters. Everybody knows we're big 
free league fans here. So I'm excited to dive into. They did promise us a review copy, so that'll be my copy. They are going to send us one, but uh, part of you what you talked to him about is the fact that things are still starting to roll out slowly. So I just won't have a copy yet. But once we have it, I get a chance to dig in. We'll do a review. Um, and then I just threw quickly on here the the news. This is not RPG news, but uh, the Marvel Marvel Zombie side. Uh, speaking of IP dominance, just closed yesterday, just a hair over nine million dollars, and that includes four hundred dollars of my own money because I backed it at the oh, hungry level. Nice. I was honestly that was big. I was kind of surprised it didn't go more than that. Really? I yeah. I don't know. I feel like Zombie Side. Kickstarters are usually huge anyway, and I thought the Marvel stuff, maybe zombies didn't do it for everybody. I still say the biggest Kickstarter of all time is going to be when Zombie Side does their Star Wars Zombie Side. So, so if you're listening, Disney, whenever they call us, uh, <laughs> they'll do then it. And really quickly, Action 12 um, Cinema Update Tracy is still working on second draft edits. Uh, they're a little bit behind because of other things. They, they communicated, we're all cool, there's no, no issues, but it's going to be a little bit later before I get back the revisions to start doing my third revision and a catacomb, nothing new. So, that out of the way, we're going to jump into re- taking a look back at Dungeon Talk 17, which was originally titled It Ain't Easy Out Here for a DM. And Tom, you listened to the episode recently. What takeaways did you have? What do you want to talk about with me now? Okay. So this was an interesting, this was a really interesting talk. All right. Uh, The big conversation that you all wanted to talk about was something that kept on happening in your game, Michael. And it has to deal with how to pivot as a dungeon master. So what you meant by this is, so you shared an example. So you're in your game, you were running, there was a player who got some magic scrolls or books a few sessions ago. You got to this puzzle where they needed to be able to translate some magical runes, all right? And the answer to that was in the scrolls and books, all right? That they had the answer, but they just couldn't put two and two together, all right? They just couldn't do it. And you didn't want to tell them, all right? Because you wanted that aha moment like them to realize oh i have these books and scrolls so the players eventually just moved on all right and you they didn't do it and you were like i'm not going to tell them because i wanted this aha moment but the reason you wanted to bring this up because there was this you had this frustration you were talking to evan about like when do you just tell the players when do you pivot when do you say all right enough is enough i'm gonna kind of change directions here all right um, because you were saying you wanted an aha moment in your game, but you were just never getting it at all. Mm. So do you remember this at all? Or do you struggle with the whole idea of like knowing when you need to change course in a particular scene? Well, I've had a few epic moments of okay. me being stubborn to a point of wanting the the players to figure something out because I wanted them to have that moment. And probably the biggest slash worst example of this, and I'm not exaggerating for effect, we spent two hours real time of the players trying to figure out how to open the first door to get into a dungeon. And they sat around, they would try something, they'd try something, they'd think about it, they'd try something, and they never hit on it. And at one point, about half an hour in, 
one of the players said the correct thing, but no one else listened to them. And this was very common with that player. They never listened to him about anything. And so finally, after two hours, I told them how to get in. They were so mad at me that we wasted two hours that that was the end of the session. And I honestly, I don't even remember if we even went back to that. We probably did, but it was excruciatingly painful. When was this? This was back in our 3.5 days. I was in Cleveland. Um, okay. So this was prior to Evan, prior to fourth edition. You know, this was 15, 20 years ago. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm happy to report that I have vastly changed my approach. And likely, as we were going into this puzzle today, I would say, Evan, you actually looking at these writings, it kind of sparks a memory. You you think you have seen this writing recently, maybe even something you got last couple of sessions, and I would just all but hand it to them because I have had so many bad experiences with that player aha moment that that one never comes and then it turns into a negative if you sit there too long. We've talked about puzzles a lot. I think most of the time when you put a puzzle, it's either instantly solved or it's never solved by the players and then it goes to the to the characters and you roll a die. And there's a lot of people who, they don't want that. They don't want puzzles to be solved by a die roll. But that's the reason why you have a high intelligence in a character. Same reason why you have a high attack when you kill a monster. You roll a die, you, you know, it's part of the the joy of building a character that's supposed to do a thing. So I don't, I kind of changed my philosophy there and I'm a lot more, not even forgiving, but just like, offering of information to just sort of help them get there. And then if it's not going where I want right away, I'll be like, well, everybody roll an intelligence check. Let's see. And then I might just give a hint there. Make it, Well, you're pretty sure this is actually the thing that the king told you last time. Okay. So I wanted to ask you then as a kind of a follow-up, it sounds like now you would do that really quickly. So I wanted to ask though, how, like how long do you wait? So like, they're doing it because puzzles and I, I would lump traps into this too. Like people looking for traps and whatnot. How long do you wait when you're playing a game to just be meta and tell the player? The one thing I would say is it also somewhat depends on the group you're in is if I'm with a group of players who I know want to have that aha moment too, then I'm probably going to wait a little bit longer and try to help, you know, maybe guide them a little bit more subtly to get there. Evan was a pretty new player at this point. He hadn't done a whole lot. He wasn't as experienced as maybe someone like, you know, I play with another time. Um, But it's going to be pretty quick. Um, You know, I kind of have this thing like with puzzles, like if you give me a riddle, I will literally either instantly know it or I will never figure it out. Without yeah. you just telling me the answer or giving me such a, a you know a outsized hint that it makes it easy for me. So if they don't pretty much right away within like five minutes of table time get on the right path that I can maybe subtly guide them just a little bit, that's when I'm going to go go meta and like let's roll some dice. Uh, I'll not just ask, do you want a hint before we roll the dice? Like I might you know just make it make it very clear above board the table what our options are. And then see where they want to go. But I'm never going to go half an hour again at the table with people pulling their hair out for just them to get mad when it's over. I think you've you've changed since this episode was recorded. I think that's one of the goals of going through these recaps. It's kind of seen because in this you in this episode, I your kind of conversation with Evan wanted you to pivot. Mm. Evan wanted you to pivot. You still wanted the aha moments in your games. 
I've been crushed. I've been defeated by the lack of them. And it very well could be the fact that I'm setting up puzzles that are just dumb and hard. But yeah, yeah. I, I have learned that the the rarity of getting to them is not worth the constant failure of not getting there. So for me, it's not necessarily like puzzles like you. What I really like is when there's a pl- some element of the plot where the players figure out. So, for example, I've introduced this NPC, but then, you know, maybe a few sessions later, the players find some information like, oh, this NPC is actually this person, or they're trying to do this instead. That's kind of what I crave, and I just gave up on that a while ago. I don't do a whole lot of puzzles. That's kind of like, so I am very, I give my players a lot of meta information because I'm like, well, if they're never going to figure it out, I might as well just tell them so that they can enjoy it with me because I want it because you having that aha moment was that was that because you wanted your players to have that or was it because you wanted it so I wanted them to have it because as a player it's one of the things that I really crave like I really enjoy that and you know again I, I sometimes with puzzles I either instantly get them or I don't I was playing second edition AD&D in college. So this would have been, I would, would have been 20. So we're talking 25, 26, 27 years ago at this point. And we were playing a game and the DM presented a, sort of a puzzle. We, we came upon this little, it was like a tombstone, but it wasn't. It was like this thing sticking out of the ground and it had these sort of like scratches and indents on it, but it, it didn't seem to make any sense. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to take some dirt and rub on it. And when it, the dirt filled in all the scratches and dents, it, created words. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I I loved that. I just kind of knew what to do right away. The GM was pretty impressed that I had figured that out that quickly. And that's what I want my players to experience. Like when I present a puzzle, I want them to feel smart. And it can begin. I will fully recognize. It may be that I'm making puzzles that are not Good puzzles. I don't know that I'm good at it. I like doing them, but maybe maybe that's the the part that's that's failing. But I want to give them the opportunity as players to feel the satisfaction of solving it. But I am going to quickly pivot if they are not on the right track within a few minutes of them like talking. Because some of that's fun too. You know, even if it's like a fifteen minute thing. But if the if the players are having fun talking to each other in character and like trying things and you know coming up with different solutions as long as i guess that's my answer as long as it seems like everyone's having fun i will keep doing it but the moment yeah. i sense frustration pivot let's do oh, something yeah. different now yeah as soon as you see your players are frustrated with a puzzle or you just know they're not getting it don't let them continue to spin their wheels or you know i hate when there's so much planning and not doing and that was one of the things that you all talked about. Evan said that was his quote. He said that he he felt like your all's table spent more time planning and talking about the most might like the tiniest minutia um, instead of actually just doing and acting and moving the plot forward, which that's what Evan wanted the plot to move. But because he's he was also one of those players who also wanted to figure everything out. He couldn't let stuff go, and you wouldn't give them the information, so they would just sit there. So I want to also turn this on the flip side and talk about players. All right. So um, this wasn't in the notes, but as we were talking about this, I thought of two different things. All right. So yes, as GMs, we can withhold information from players. 
Also, players can withhold information from other players in the sense that a lot of times players will have these deep backstories. All right. Why create a backstory that you're not going to tell everybody? Um, is it just for your own enjoyment? Because I would counter that you would have so much more enjoyment if everybody knew, knew about it. The, the two examples I have is my very first campaign. I never played D&D before. The people I was playing with, only one other person had played D&D, and he had played like one game. All right. But he knew how to, he knew how to play. So he played one game before. All right. Of course. So, yeah. Um, the, so, but my brother's playing with us, and he's like, this is amazing, Tom. This, I, he's like, so I can create anything. I was like, yeah, man, anything you want. He's like, all right, I'm going to be a wizard, but I'm actually a dragon that lost my memory when I transformed into a human. So now I'm stuck as a human. I was, as a new GM, I was like, oh yeah, that's great. And then he, then he was like, but I want to turn into a dragon when we hit level 20. And I was like, yeah, dude, that sounds awesome. So we did this. And so he had this super cool backstory. But nobody knew about it until we hit level 20. And then he just turns into a dragon. Everybody's like, what? What is going on? Like, so it was cool in the moment, but I was thinking about it. And we talked about it later. I was like, we're thinking about like, how much cooler would it have been if people would have knew that you were a dragon? And then they would have understood your little ticks that you were doing or why you would go talk to this other NPC in town. Like, have you seen, have you ever had anything like that character backstory stuff? Oh, yeah, and I've talked about this several times where I'm a big believer in having character secrets but not player secrets. Okay, so yeah, yeah. So in my opinion, all the other players at the table should have known that even if their mm -hmm. characters didn't. So the yes. so everyone gets that. Like you said, it's, it's, it's fun for everyone. So if you're going to do these secretly working against the other players, you know, I'm secretly evil bit, just tell everybody. That way, everybody yeah. gets to have fun when you when you get closer to your goal or when you're almost caught. Like everyone's excited for you and with you, rather than just feeling betrayed when you suddenly spring it on them. I just think it's more fun that way. It's that dramatic irony of we know there's a bomb under the table, but the characters don't. So we get all the excitement and you know and that entertainment value, even though if our characters don't. And I know there's there's concern that characters can't keep it. You know, player knowledge bleeds over, and, yeah. and if one player wants to be like, I think Dave's secretly a dragon at level two, just because like that one time he did this thing, and it kind of kind of can ruin it. But then that comes to trust in your players, and you can always be like, okay, you have no reason to say that. We're going to retcon that didn't happen. Okay, we're we're yeah. not the story is still whole because that's the point of this is for us all to have fun, not for you to figure out that particular aspect of it. So I'm a big fan of player knowledge, character secrets. So I totally agree with you. And this was like my first campaign, and so I didn't understand this. Right. This was like I was like, oh, this sounds awesome, creating this cool backstory, and we had fun with it. But we were just thinking about how much more fun it would have been. So I. Very much so. I'm like, guys, create these player, like you were saying, character secrets. And then we'll role play that they're secrets. But everybody knows about it. That way we can role play more. So, but most, so recently in my Forbidden Lands game, this is so funny. I went the other way. So one of my, so Jake, uh, one of my players, he comes to me and he knows about how we do secrets. What, you mean, you like, mean Papa Jake? Papa Jake. Papa yeah, Jake. yeah. All right. It was so funny though. Um, he, came to me and he was like tom i want to have a character secret but i want it to be a player secret too and he was like i'm a human but i'm 
been transformed into a goblin and I'm going to be playing a goblin in Forbidden Lands. So I was like, dude, this is amazing. We're going to do this. All right. So, so funny though. Session one, one of the other people like totally figures it out. All right. Because it's Jake. Everybody, he is so easy to read. And so, but so he doesn't say anything. All right. Right off the bat. But then he does say something. And we are, we start laughing so hard because Jake has this great thing that he was planning on doing, but he figured it out so fast. It was so funny. And so, but what was, what made it even more funny was that one of the other players was out of the room when the other player announced it. So as of right now, this other player who was getting a beer at the time still doesn't know about it. <laughs> and everybody else does. And what's, it makes it even more funny is that in the game, this other player, is kind of like an antagonist, an antagonist to Jake's character. Mm-hmm. And Jake's an antagonist to him. So it's just so funny when everybody will all be sitting at the table and Jake will do something and we'll all start laughing because we're in on this joke and this other player doesn't know the joke. And it is, it is the best. So my advice, all right, is have, do some character secret and player secret, but tell everybody but one player. <laughs> and I guarantee it'll be so much fun. Well, I would take that as, yeah, I'm, I definitely uh, advocate player knowledge, character secrets, but there are still exceptions to, yeah. to everything. So maybe your table is different. Maybe this one particular campaign, you want to try it differently. Go for it. You may have an amazing time, but I think in general, it works out best. Like the majority of the time, you know, 80% of the most games are going to play better if players know, but characters don't. But there are going to be exceptions either way. So the one thing I wanted to ask you, though, about uh, in the last thing here is recaps. All right. So and so a way to, a good way to give players the information without just telling them in game is to give them good recaps. All right. And this is one of the things that you all talked about. So to you, Michael, what is a how can a good recap fix issues of players not having knowledge that they need and yeah, so what makes that recap good? So I've, I have a few different opinions on this, and I've gone back and forth. And, and for a while, I was having players give recaps. Yeah. And I think that is in some ways good because it lets you see what they thought was important. But, yep. but what they think is important may not be what you thought was important. So sometimes they may give a recap, and it doesn't actually it, – it lets you give – gives you information as a DM, but it doesn't actually give the players – the 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 sort of the recap of the important things that are important in that session. So there's a bit of a risk with doing it that way. Uh, if there's like there's a really big moment coming up and they just they don't mention that particular NPC or they don't men- mention this particular thing, then you as a DM may have to step in and go, well, but you also need to remember this, which is very clearly given away that that's going to be important in this game. Where if the DM always does the recaps, then you can always include the relevant information as well as some other just general things so it may not be so super obvious. And, you know, I watch a lot of TV, and that's one of the things that, you know, usually when a show will come on, you'll say, you know, previously on, and you'll get like a little recap. And it's always that time where it's like, oh, well, we know this character's coming back because they just gave us the recap from, you know, two seasons ago when that character was introduced. So clearly they're in this episode again. And it can sometimes be a little bit like, well, I would I kind of would prefer not to know that was coming. But I think TV is a different medium than role-playing games. So I think it's not as big of a potential detriment. So it, my current, you know, process is I, as the DM, give the recaps 
at the beginning of each game, and I do them very cinematically. I will do previously on Shadow Spawns, or I previously on Dark Discovery, and I would tell the things that are that happened last time, and I will bring things in that I think are relevant. So like, if I was doing this today for that game, I might have said previously on, you know, Evan's character found this book full of ancient writing that you've had, you know, you've been working through trying to decipher that might be helpful in the future. Like I would probably say something just so obvious about it there so that when we get to the moment in the game, I don't have to meta plot and say, hey, Evan, don't forget you have that book. So it's it's sort of a way to to bridge those two. I've reminded him at the beginning of the game, but maybe a full hour later that it comes up in game. And if he still is like, oh, yeah, let me check the book, you still kind of get that aha moment. So I'm a big fan of DM-led recaps at this point. Yeah, same. I I've I used to get very detailed recaps of like we so much fluff, and then I realized players aren't reading this. So I do very I, I it's very much this is the information you need for this session. And I'm a I use bulleted points now. I use an outline format. Um I try to avoid using too much prose. And I just give them what they need to know. Here's your here's your current quest. Here are your hooks that you currently have. Here are the important NPCs that you need to know. And I give this to them the day before we play, very specifically, so that they ha- both have enough time to read it. But then they there's not enough there's not enough time in between them reading it and us playing that they forget about it again. And then also just that twenty four hour period typically, you know, lets their imagination start to go and them thinking about the game. So I think you just need to be, you need to be very intentional with your recaps. Very intentional. What do you want your players to know? Just give them that. Keep it brief. Outline formats are great. Definitely agree. I think that'll help. So uh, the next question was a mailbag question. Which we probably sent to ourselves, but I don't know. There was a point we did get a few questions. I don't remember specifically. I know the one about the very first one and the one about the the snacks. I remember those specifically we sent ourselves. I don't remember about the others. All right. If you're listening to this, because we know people listen to this. All right. Shoot us an email at therpgacademy at gmail.com, and we will read your questions. Yes. We would like to maybe do a full mailbag episode, like a whole episode of nothing but reading mailbag questions. So we need a bunch. It can be anything, all right? Anything, all right? It could about be, did you guys. send yourself questions when you first started the yeah. show? Yes, we did. I answered it yeah. now, but I'll answer it again later. Yeah, so this question, this is an interesting one, because I don't remember ever talking about this. The question is, what are some barriers that are keeping people from becoming game masters, all right? And the way I want to approach this question, Michael, is not advice for how people can become game masters but me and you talking as experienced gms why do we think people more people aren't being game masters what's the problem well again that's sort of the basis of what this show had become and i I feel like now there are so many podcasts and resources that you know like that was our goal was to be an ambassadorship to the hobby to help people get started and part of that was to reduce the anxiety of you have to be perfect at it I think that was a barrier for a long time that someone felt like, well, if I don't know all the rules, I'll I'll mess up. If I don't know all the lore, I'll mess up. If I don't have confidence, I won't speak well. I won't be able to present things. Like a, another player might overrun me if they're too vocal or whatever the case may be. 
So there's just some anxiety that comes with putting yourself out there in a position of kind of leadership. It's like, you know, it's like doing a presentation in school or a presentation at work. A lot of people have anxiety at that. Some people don't. Some people just naturally, they're like, I'll talk in front of anybody. I'll, you know, I don't care. But having someone who wants to be a DM, who's in the hobby, and who just has the natural aptitude for being public speaker and a group leader, that's great. You probably don't need any help necessarily. But for those of us who have anxiety, who get really anxious about speaking in public, that can be part of it. And for me, I think the more I know about a topic, the more comfortable I am like in a work setting. I can teach you anything at work. But I need to know what I'm trying to teach you. Like I need to have time to read the manuals and and I'll I'll work out in my head and I'll get up there and I'll present. I'll do a great job as a facilitator. I've done it time and time and time again. For me personally, I've gotten better at being an improv DM. Like I you know I'm not an expert, but I consider myself talented at it. So that's what I rely on. Is it's not that I know everything about the game. It's that I'm knowledgeable about how to improv when I don't know what I'm doing. That is why I can do it without as without any more anxiety than I actually do have. I know that at the time I mentioned money was a problem, and that still is a bit of an issue. Again, talking about D and D, like you know, the three source books are fifty bucks each, unless you get them off you know Amazon for like twenty or thirty each or whatever. You can get the essentials kit sometimes for lowest ten dollars, but there are free versions available. But the same sort of mental gymnastics that caused me to back the Marvel Kickstarter zombies at that level because I didn't want to not get the Guardians figures are the same reason why people may not feel comfortable using just the free PDF that you can get from Wizards of the Coast because it's not the whole game. There are options that don't come included. And then sometimes you feel like, well, am I missing out? Am I limiting my player's options if I don't give them everything? So I think there is a bit of anxiety of, I need to have every single book. I need all the source books. And if you're talking about D&D, that's, I think I saw some of those the other day. If you buy everything at retail level that's available for 5e, it's like around $1,200 right now. Maybe even more. Maybe it's like eighteen. So yeah, there, you know, if, if you're, the expectation is the DM will provide the main, the maps, the minis, the books, the uh, you know D and D beyond subscription, whatever. I do think money could be a a barrier for some people. It, it doesn't need to be, but it still could be. Yeah, the for me, I think the barrier is two things. I think the there is a the saturation of Dungeons and Dragons in the market. All right, I think that's number one because people associate role playing games with Dungeons and Dragons. So, they're like, "Oh, I want to do I want to play role-playing games." All right. So, they think Dungeons and Dragons. So, they go to Dungeons and Dragons, all right? And I don't personally, I don't think Dungeons and Dragons is the best game to start out with, even though I started out with it because I wanted to do role-playing games, but the only game I knew was Dungeons and Dragons, all right? Cuz I'm not immersed in the hobby. That's just the one you get, all right? It's just you know, like it or not, if nobody has any friends who play RPGs, they're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. All right. And it's exactly what you were saying, Michael. There's this whole idea that the the three source book model is so dated and so bad. And it is it used to work back in like the first edition second edition days because the books were a lot smaller now there is so much content and you think about it if you want to run D like as written 
the dungeon master. You don't need the the dungeon master's guide doesn't let you run D and D. You need the player's handbook. So it's just, and then people are like, well, what's the essentials kit? What's the starter kit? It's it's it is so confusing. What do I need to buy? So I think there's this like this idea that people just don't know how to start. And I'm thinking about it. I I tell people if they want to do Dungeons and Dragons, I tell them just to get the starter set. All right, that's what I tell them. But somebody who doesn't have somebody to tell them what to get, it's so confusing. You go on Amazon, you type in Dungeons and Dragons, and there's like so many books. It's it's the same thing with comic books, I think. People are like, well, okay, I want to read Batman. All right, you go to the comic book store. And there's like five different Batman titles. There's Detective Comics. There's Batman and Superman. You're like, well, what's what is Batman? I just want Bat. Like, which comic do I need to read to get the main Batman story? And then people just don't read them. And then it's, especially if you're going back, and you're trying to read issue runs, and there's volumes of stuff. It's very confusing. Um, I look at the um, a lot of newer companies who are doing bigger games. They're doing one source book. All right, that's kind of like. L5, Legends of Five Rings, Fantasy Flight. They have one source book. The One Ring. They have the one source book. All right. It's I'm very much of, of starter sets for that reason or box sets. That starter has, sets are awesome. Has all you need and usually includes like a sample adventure or a mini adventure. Uh, usually it comes with a, this is what a role play game section, you know, is. And, you know, it's one of the things like I think about a lot of indie games that are really good about fostering role playing, but. I do think there's an intimidation factor there. It's almost like jumping out of a plane with only like a tiny parachute. Sorry, my dog's barking downstairs. Mm-hmm. Versus a D&D, which is bulky, but there's a giant parachute in there. Like you've got so many resources if you're willing to do the research, podcasts, YouTube videos, streams, workshops, conventions. Like you have a lot of resources around you, but it does take some time navigating. But if you jump out of that plane... You've got a parachute on your back. Some of these smaller India games, you know, like 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 even like the one pagers. Like I've had a ton of fun playing Honey Heist with you. I think we played Jason Statham's Big Adventure. But if you don't know how to role play, could you just take that one sheet and start? Like it, I don't think it really tells you how to role yeah, play. I, it's just like the parameters of a specific type of story you're going to tell in one session. Yeah, I I don't think I could. I I think that those are soup making some assumptions. I definitely think though, and this is what I wanted to talk about. I think that there are way better games to tell people to play other than D and D to run their first game. And I think those games follow a certain product strategy. It's the one core book. You've got one book, and you have a starter set. That is that is like I mean, it's that's basically all free leagues games other than. Um, Forbidden Lands, which has the box set, and that's it. But you think about like, yeah, all the the Star Wars games. They've got their they got the one core book for what you want to run. Oh no, they don't. They've got multiples on stuff. I don't know. Um, but uh, there's just I feel like having more books. There's more heavy lifting for somebody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just. I, that's what I think it is. I think that just having too much information is not good. And I think that's why people don't get yeah, into well, it. I think too much is bad. I think not enough is bad, which again, related yeah. to that one page, like, you, you know, you need something that has enough information. It has the right information to get you started. So it's sort of like, uh, it's like the doorway into Narnia, you know, like you need an avenue in 
And there might be an entire world on the other side that you could never fully explore, but you still need a doorway to go through to get there. So I guess I'll make this our call to action to the audience. What is that perfect doorway? Is there a particular system or a particular product that you think is the doorway to get people in that gives them the tools they need to then explore the other side of that vast, you know, boundless uh, eternity that is role-playing games. What would you say it is? And, you know, we'll put a list together. If we get enough, maybe we'll do another episode. We talk a little bit about it. Maybe we'll do a review on some of them or something. But what do you think that perfect doorway is, um, product or game? Yeah, I think that really this conversation, it's not like I said at the beginning, it's not necessarily like how do this particular conversation It's not like, how do you become a DM or how do you make that? It's us. Like, what, what do we think the problem is? And I think it's a host of problems. Um, there's just, it's an, there's dated things, you know, it's, but yeah, so let us know, like, what it is. Like, what do you think it is? Well, and again, just to recap one more time, but it's also because role playing itself is so many things. Like for one yeah. group, a role-playing game is almost like a board game where you got minis and it's very combat-focused, very strategy, very minimal role-play other than like, you know, almost like cut scenes in a movie. Like you have the conversation with the king, but now we're in a fight. You have the conversation with the werewolf leader, but now we're in a fight. And then you have some games that are basically improv theater that you may not roll a die at all. And all of those are role-playing games. And some of those are the same game. You know, it's just depends on how yep. you flavor particularly. So someone who's particularly good at one thing may not be suited to a group or a table that prefers the other. And I think that's part of it as well, is there's so much variance within what is considered one hobby that it's also hard to be a master of everything. You know, I'm, I think I'm a really good DM. I'm not good at creating battles. Like, I don't run combat very well because I don't do it very often because I'm not good at it. And it's sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I'm not good at it, so I'm not going to do it. I don't do it, so I don't get better at it. So I'm still, not, you know, type of a thing. So there are people who probably wouldn't be anywhere near as qualified as I am to, like, run an improv game that could run a combat game that would be the best I'd have played. But we're both DMs, yeah. you know. It's, it's just the nature of the hobby. Yeah, the last thing too that we I wanted to talk about about this topic is the other thing that you talked about, and I think is one of the reasons that you created the podcast in the first place, is the other reason is that most games typically require somebody else to teach them. All right. So like for me, I'm a very self-motivated learner. So I was able to, without anyone telling me how to play, I was able to pick it up spend hours learning Dungeons and Dragons and facilitate that game. All right. That was me. I'm an exception there. And so a lot of games though, they really do require somebody to teach them. So I think if more game companies were able to create very concise, very clean online digital resources for teaching the game, YouTube workshops, simplify these things down to their bare bones I think that then you would have more people. People need to be taught how to play these games. And the, you need to go into this teaching with as few assumptions of what the people who are trying to learn the game know. They know nothing. And a lot of resources are going in with the assumption that some people kind of know about role-playing already. So I think there needs to be more good online resources, not necessarily from independent third-party people, but from the actual people who make the game. Make 
product tutorials for people. I see this a lot in board games. Like I almost never buy a board game anymore that doesn't come with a don't read the rules. Click, you know, scan this QR code. Here's a video on how to play. They partner with third party, like, you know, watch it played, how it's played type of thing. But I think in role playing games, it's so more difficult because I could put a role playing game AP, AP together but it may not look anything like what you would want to do yes. in your table, but we're still playing the same game. It, actual plays are not where you learn how to role play. You see people role play, but it's not where you learn how to role play. You need somebody to tell you how to do it. And this doesn't need to be a four hour long thing. This is 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, very but anyway. Cool. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, once again, Tom, thank you so much for again doing all the heavy lifting, going back and listening to the old episodes and then presenting it and orchestrating everything. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, So where could people find you if they want to interact with you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter at Bezcar Tom. That's Mandalorian Metal Tom. You can find me at the RPG Academy. You can email the show, the RPG Academy at gmail.com. You can support this show at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. There'll be links in the show notes for all the things we talked about. And before we go, we just want to say quickly, remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.